when it comes to changing, implementing change within the education system. Why do you think in your experience so many schools fall short? Because they haven't got the innovative thought process that, that enables you to, to change. They haven't got the courage to do it. They're frightened. They're frightened of the failure of it. That's why change doesn't happen because of the high stakes accountability that we have associated with GCSEs and, and SATs and Ofsted and you know, the monitoring and everything that goes on and, and, and the incessant focus on data and, and procedure and control. You must mark this, you must fill in this planning form, you must do literacy, you must do this planning from maths. It, it, it's, it, it's, an, it's, it's, it's a system that for the overwhelming majority of teachers is, is all encompassing and it stops them being innovative, stops them being different. We need, we need leaders who are courageous, we need leaders who were brave. Um, I think it was Wilshaw, many, many years ago, said we need the Mavericks. They've got them in the independent sector. He said we need them in the state sector. That was that was the head of Ofsted. That was Mike Wilshaw before our current, current you know, so they've been, Ofsted have been asking for these people for years. Oh, and, and my experience of, of, of being a, an innovative leader is that every time Ofsted have come in, that, that's what they call, you know, they walk away and write on the report, you're inspiration. Because I'm innovative, because I don't do, I don't do what everybody else does. I do what is right for my children and my staff. So I make paperwork the minimum that it could possibly be. Somebody much cleverer than me, many, many years ago, came up with the, the idea that you could do your PPA in 10% of your teaching time, right? Planning, preparation, and assessment in, in your time, in that time off. I, I would argue that, well, 80, 90% of teachers go away and all they do is plan. They don't do any prep, they don't do very, they do very little assessment, unless it's the time of year where they're gathering data, senior leaders are gathering data. So I would make sure that my, my staff, my systems were such within my school that you could do all the planning, all the prep and all the assessment within your 10% time. My, my staff could go anywhere to do their PPA. If they wanted to go to the pub, if they wanted to go home, they could do it wherever they want. My staff room looked like a Costa coffee. It had more sofas in it and, and coffee machines and things like that than you could possibly believe. It, it, I, I, they, they were no, none of those chairs that all sort of stacked next to each other and lined up in nice little squares and sort of there were sofas in there and coffee machines and an 80 inch screen TV. And, and things like that. I, I, I allowed my staff to make mistakes and, and not fear or worry about, um, about getting it wrong. You know, I, I, I made them observe each other instead of senior leaders observing so that they could learn best practice from their colleagues, not a clipboard wielding head teacher who sits in his office all day. That's a waste of time. It's a complete waste of time. All right? They, they learned and, and developed how to become better teachers. You know, and the only way that you do that is by, you only learn when you make mistakes, isn't it? And, and, and try something new. In my experience, it, it's, it's, it's easier to make improvement and rapid improvement when you're in a school which I, which I have got the experience of, it, it, when you go into them and their standards are very poor uh, and they're really struggling. It's not because the kids can't do it, it's because of what you're putting in front of them. You know, it's how you're teaching them and how, you, you know, how those staff are led. And the staff, are, I always said as a head teacher, I'm the second most important person in the school. The teachers are the most important. And it's my job to empower them to do their job. And if I was doing that, then I was doing my job. You know, and, and my teachers would come to school happy, working in, in a system that supported them. You know, the doors were shut on my school at half past five. Nobody worked over the weekend, ever. I always said to them, if you can't do your job between half seven in the morning and half five at night, 10 hours a day for five days, that's 50 hours. If you can't do your job in 50 hours and something's horrifically wrong, you know, you shouldn't be working at the holidays. You shouldn't be working at the weekend because I want you 100% super focused and, and delivering in the classroom day in, day out. That's what's important. 
Now, I was the kind of teacher who would uh, be standing on tables and have loud music pumping and my kids would be jumping around and dancing. That was me, right? That doesn't mean to say that it worked for all my members of staff. Indeed, I have worked with some miraculous colleagues who I would, who I would adore going and sitting in their lesson. I don't, didn't observe, never judged and didn't observe, but I would adore going into their lessons because they were on completely the other end of the spectrum to me in the terms of their delivery. They would sit very quietly at their desk and go mumble a few sentences and my God, the kids learned. And I found it inspirational to watch because I just thought, I couldn't do that. I really couldn't do that. But I would move my staff around all the time, integrating them with different year bands and different colleagues. It's like I'd stand up on a Friday morning and say, right, this afternoon, year six, you are teaching reception. Year five, you are teaching year one. Year, year reception, you are teaching year four. Year two, you are two. What? Oh, my God. And I said, yeah, but moving them about kept them sharp and kept them focused. And it gave them some appreciation of what their colleagues did around the school, particularly That's when the year sixes ended up in reception. So I was always trying to do something different. You know, my, one of my fun awards was in, in one Friday assembly, I had the whole school there and I gave every member of staff a packet of juggling balls, three juggling balls. And I set them the challenge of in two weeks time, you are going to stand up in front of the whole school. And if you can juggle for 10 seconds, I will give you half a day off. I wasn't interested to see whether they could do it because I'll give them half a day off, that's fine. I can, I can work that. That'd be great because I'd just run around and teach in the classes all, all the time, but that'd be fun. I wasn't interested in that. I wanted to see how they would react to learning something new. It was really interesting. Within, a, within about 15 minutes of the assembly finishing, I had about four members of my staff at my door going, I can't do it. I said, so now you know how the kids feel when you stick stuff in front of them. And is that your, do you not get onto those kids and say, get on with it? Practice, have a go. You're at my door saying that you're not even willing to have a go. Is that the kind of person that you are? And then I had other members of staff who would dive into it and do everything that they possibly could. You know, my staff were great because within two days, I, you know, and the following weeks, um, assembly, they turned up with a unicycle and we, they said, we challenge you to ride that unicycle down the playground. We're on. You know, I would, I would go out for a day. I would be on a course or a meeting or whatever it was. And I came back to school and my, my office had been completely wrapped up in silver foil. Every single thing in my office had been wrapped up in silver foil. And then I'd go out again for another day in July and I came back and it was a Christmas grotto. Five trees in there and lit up like a flaming lantern. But I did it to them. So they did it to me. And that's, and that's the way that it, 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 it can be. You simplify systems, you make things, you make people feel secure and empowered so that they can do things that are right for their kids. And if it's right for their kids, you know, you might have a phonics scheme that says we're following, oh, everybody does read, write, ink. Yeah. So everybody follows Russell Wilson's read, write, ink. But what if read, write, ink would work for some kids? Are you just going to blindly follow read, write, ink for that kid? Just stick to the structure? Or do you actually have to step back and do something different for those children because they don't get it? One size does not fit all. It might fit the majority, which is fine, but you have to be prepared to step away from it and do something different if it doesn't work. And be professional enough to look at your class and think, this isn't working. I'm not, right, I'm doing it this way next time. We'll, we'll do this again, but we're going to do it in a completely different way. I encouraged all key stage one, 50% of key stage one learning to be outside. They do it in early years and then suddenly in year one, it all gets shut down and you've got to be in the classroom. Nonsense. I argued and, and pushed as hard as I possibly could with my staff to say 50% of learning outside in key stage one. I suppose so by doing that, you're, you're helping prepare the students as well, integrating them in the classroom. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, we, we move staff around. I get the older kids would be reading to the younger kids. I gave every kid in Key State through their own tablet. My biggest problem was staff. Staff didn't know how to use them well enough. The kids were all over my ton of bricks. And it was a tablet that they brought in every day and it followed them through the school and they took it with them when they left. Okay. You know, I, I, I didn't buy books for the library. I bought e-books. Because everybody in Key State still had an e-tablet. They could just drop them onto their e-books at the e-tablet and then just read them. Reading is reading. I love books. 
I'll buy them all the time. I'm, I'm of the generation where I love the smell, the, the taste, and the, the, the you know, the, 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 the actual physical holding of a book. But get, don't get me wrong, I absolutely get reading from a tablet, you know, and, and, and with, whether I like it or not, this generation of kids coming through are going to do that a lot more than they do that. So as teachers, we have to have that courage to say, you know, is, is, is what has always traditionally been done the right way? So, yeah, some things are old school. Want to learn your times tables? There's no other way in the world than sitting there and, and write them down, repeat, write, repeat, write, repeat, write, repeat. As a head teacher, I used to go around every uh, year two, year three, year four, every week, and give them a timetable test, every week. Why Mr. Paris in 1970 did that to me, my head teacher? You know what? I learned my ruddy timetable. And I would go into year two, year three, year four, and do their timetables with them. I used to do it with year five and year six because they had done it before and they needed to catch up. But I used to go in and do timetables with them every week. Half an hour it took. So would, you, so would you say that repetition for, um, of education, in this instance, times table, would be is just as important replicating for teaching your staff? It, it, yeah, I mean, there are some things, there are, there are some things that need to be learned through repetition. And you do, you learn through repetition, don't you? When you've got the high stakes accountability of, you know, you, are, you will have a times tables test, which will govern how the school will be judged by Ofsted, local authorities, everybody else involved with it, then obviously that you, you need to make sure that those things are done. Because, you know, it, it, you know you're going to be viewed and judged in that. On the other hand, I don't think there's anything wrong with learning your time tables by the end of year four because they're a skill that you're going to need to apply through the rest of your life, really. You know, so some things staff need to learn and, 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 and learn how to deliver it and learn how to deliver it well. But they also need to have the permission to be able to step back and go, no, this isn't working. I'm going to do it a different way and not be frightened by that to use their professional judgment and to be trusted so that they do what is right for kids. And as a head teacher, my job is to help them. So when they come to me saying, Phil, can I do this? Can I do that? My answer is yes, unless they want to do something completely bonkers. The, the rest of the time it is absolutely categorically, yes. Will it improve outcomes and will it improve things for the kids? Yes, absolutely. Now don't get me wrong, when you go to a school staff are terrified of doing that and it takes time to to develop that the courage um and, and strengthen your staff so that they're willing to have a go but once they're willing to once they've been willing to have a go and they get it wrong and it doesn't matter no worries you have a good giggle about it and go okay how would you do it again in the future so well, we're going to do that they've learned from it then they do it and it works then they begin to get into that psyche of yeah, I want to do things differently. And that's how you get... My own experience was a school that was in the bottom 20% for progress. And within two years, it was in the top 15% for progress. This has got nothing to do with the kids and where they're from, their background, their disadvantage, whatever. It's irrelevant. It's how they're being taught. And the big problem that we've got is that those kids who have got disadvantage, who are in these hardcore areas, are being taught exactly the same as the kids who are affluent in very strong and positive areas. And it's not, and it's not right. You, you have to develop it. The, the biggest, the most, forgive me, the most stupid document that we have in education is the national curriculum. It's, 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 it's 204 pages long in primary school. 204 pages of prescriptive stuff that we have to teach. It's a nonsense. And it's the same. How can a kid in the centre of Birmingham need to learn exactly the same stuff as a kid who lives in rural Hampshire. <laughs> That's the national figure. I get why it happened. I get because then it gives a baseline for everybody. But to be 204 pages long is an absolute nonsense. Bring it down to 20 pages, 15, 20, basic English maths and sciences and stuff like that. Then the rest of it has got to be tailored to the individual needs of those kids who are in hardcore inner city areas where they're watching, you know, in Birmingham this weekend, you know, everybody's getting stabbed and riots and all sorts of hell, you know, yeah. yeah. 
Whereas in rural Hampshire, they don't get any, you know, the biggest problem they've got is a sheep on the road. <laughs> How can they need to learn exactly the same stuff? It's stupid. You know, I understand that you've got to have a, a basic core curriculum. I get that. And I agree with that. But then the freedom and the autonomy should be given to the profession to say, we trust you to know what is best for your kids. So just to interrupt there, uh, I take it, are you indicating things like life skills, um, self-regulation, holistic education? Absolutely. It's, it's, it's amazing that even today that, you know, with all the issues that we've got on going on with young people, um, there is no trauma and attachment training given to any training teacher. It just doesn't happen. It's just, it's just bonkers. It's all about behaviorism and rewarding and punishing. You know, it, you know, we need to be, we need to be a better profession. We need to go deeper than that. And I'm into things like um, uh, experiential learning, phenomenon-based learning, taking opportunities when they come along, you know, and, 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 and using them when they're happening, looking at the news, using politics, you know, uh, using things that are happening in the news and, and building them into, um, into, the, into children's learning because that's the world that they grow up in. You know, much as I have respect for Florence Nightingale, how irrelevant is that to a six-year-old, seven-year-old? The Great Fire of London. No, an interesting thing. You'll go into so many schools in year two at a particular time, they will all be learning about Great Fire of London. It drives me mad. Why can't kids learn about things that are of interest to them and direct their learning themselves and take it forward? You're telling me we can't do it in the 21st century. You're having a laugh. This is the seventh biggest economy in the world. Are you telling me that we can't facilitate that? You wouldn't think so. If you look at countries like um, Finland, Estonia, Canada, they have a much more child-centric education system. And, and at the end of it all, they, they always out, outperform the UK and those countries that are very much test-orientated. Always. They always outperform them and perform them in PISA league tables at the end of at the end of education because they focus on the whole kid. Finland is about to start to drop all subjects and go to phenomenon-based learning. Where they the kids drive their own learning and the English and the maths falls into it. One of the biggest problems I had was teachers wanted a timetable. Now, if you go into a primary school, it'll say English and maths in the morning. Guarantee it. Right? Unless they've got the PE slot in the morning, right? Or a IT suite slot, right? It'll be English and math. And then in the afternoon it'll be topic. My huge argument with it was you should never be doing it. It should say topic. That's what it should say. Topic. And you do your literacy through your topic. You go into any class. I got I, I, I hope you do this. Go and look at 50 classrooms at primary environment. You'll have an English working wall, you'll have a maths working wall, and you'll have a little sciencey working wall, and then you'll have a little topic working wall. It's all ass about face. It's all the wrong way around. It should be a classroom that's just full of topics with its English aspect, with its mathematical aspect, but it's all English working wall, math working wall, sciencey bit, topic. Yeah. Every kid, every school, every, all over the country. Drives me mad. Because they're all the same. They are all a product. Dr. Victoria Carr did a very good thesis on it. Another head teacher who, uh, who is up in Cheshire, who is another one that challenges the system. What's, it, what's his name? Dr. Victoria Carr. She, she's, again, another terrific head teacher who challenges the system. There are hoops you have to jump through. Yes, actually, you cannot be... Um, completely bonkers and just do what the hell you like. Yeah. There are things that you have got to do and I get that. But you do have an enormous amount of freedom to tailor the curriculum to the needs of your children and to the benefit and support and create systemic schools that are so easy to work in for teachers that they can do it within Monday to Friday and then walk away and have a weekend off. It ain't rocket science. And, and just, uh, how, how does someone go, go on? It just takes courage to stand up and say, this isn't working. We need to do it differently. How, how do you go, 
how does one go about that? For example, just starting off with um, a head teacher. How do they? Let's say they got they have to follow the national curriculum, mm-hmm. but how do they make that work? With I know you've already touched on a few a few points in, but how do you change? Let's say, um, how do you incorporate the alternative education within? Well, that's the skill of a teacher, isn't it? That's what a teacher's supposed to do. It, it sounds to me, I know, I know, I know, it's funny, but it seems to be. And, and that's the problem, you see. That it is is that skill of teaching being lost? Because I, I see too many teachers, too many, not all, and it would be wrong to, you know, there are some outstanding practitioners out there who really are remarkable at what they do. But there are too many teachers who are just scheme deliverers. I remember when I was a trainee teacher many, many, many moons back in the last century, quite frankly. I when I went into it, when I, before I went into a school, I had to write and develop a full scheme of work for that class for the whole term, cross-referenced against the national curriculum. But it was driven, the scheme of work was driven and written by its overriding topic. One I remember clearly was I was teaching, a, I was going into school to teach year one and uh, and, my t- and, and, and all I had on my day visit was to find out what my topic was, and it was the weather. And I had to come away and I had to write a detailed six to eight week plan on the weather. Now, trainee teachers come into school today and they say, can I have your scheme of work? They don't know how to develop medium term and long term planning because it's handed to them. Because it's followed Singapore maps. Follow rewriting. We follow this reading scheme. Follow this curriculum, X, Y, Z, that we bought in and spent thousands training everybody, but you weren't here, so we've got to train you now. Everybody is a robot. Everybody follows it. But that's fine for the ones that it works for. But he's every Education was set up in this country so that factory owners could put people into schools, give them a basic introduction to reading and writing and do as you're told. If you go to prison, there's a bell. You wear a uniform. There's consequences to doing things wrong. There's rewards if you do things right. Oh, hang on, that's prison. No, hang on, that's a school. And the idea is that at the end of it, when they came out at the end of it, they could then pour into the factories, which is what happened, follow instruction, work to a bell, get rewards if they did it right, get into trouble if they got it wrong. That was the, that was the turn of the 19th, turn of the 20th century. And, and I'm sitting here in 2020, having exactly the same discussion. I come across a lot of discussions about uniform and things like that. You know, and I and I and they all chip it in about everything. And I said, does, "Does a uniform help you learn?" In no other country in the world do they have uniforms, other than England. Where, well, you know, private education abroad they will, but there's no other country in the world that has uniforms. And yet, there's this debate: Does a uniform help you learn? No, no, it doesn't. What's the point of school? Help you learn. However, because we're stuck in this culture, I would say a uniform is a good thing because it makes you feel part of something. It makes you, but it's a different debate. Education was set up so people could pour into factories and do as they're told. That day, it's gone. It's dead. And, and the sooner that governments realise it, and it is all political parties, the sooner head teachers and trust chief, chiefs of trust start to realise that their, their kids, even in three or four schools, are different. There will be some things that will be generic. Absolutely. But, there were, but then they have to look at each kid as an individual. But while you have a system that tests, you know, that, that statutorily tests, you know, children five years out of seven in a primary environment, statutory, you've got baseline, phonics, SATs key stage one, times tables year four, SATs in year six, statutory. Everything is controlled by central government. And then it moves on and then you've got GCSEs and everything like that. And everything is held to account based on those such results. I've had kids in year six 
throwing up, feeling sick, actually physically sick because of these damn tests. They're 10 years old. Wow. It's appalling what we do to them. Never mind, you know, statutorily testing them when they're four. Now, it's not in a formal capacity and the kids don't really know they're being tested, but they are. The moment you're born in this country, Ashley, you'll have been given an APGAR score. You're tested the moment you're born here. It's all about data. It's all about a product that can be manipulated so they can show what their reforms have done. It's rubbish. And our kids deserve better. And as leaders, we have to be better. We have to start rebelling and turning against it. And parents have to start turning against it and saying, this ain't good enough for me. I, I, I don't know whether to laugh or cry when, you know, when I've been in my office and the kids come in and they said, oh, sir, I, you know, I, I remember my seven-year-old years ago when he, when he came home and he said, dad, he's a picnic, a compound word. I didn't know whether to laugh or cry. He was seven. What a load of rubbish. What an absolute load of bloody rubbish. He's seven. And he needs to know what a compound word is. And never mind the rest of the grammar. Oh, God. Go and look at a spag paper. Pick out the subordinate clause on this. A subordinate clause. I still don't know what a subordinate clause is now. And I don't care. Because it's irrelevant. But my God, you've got to know it when you're 10. And that's what makes things better. Because you work in an inner city where you've got a mum who's got mental health issues, dad has got real drinking problems and things like that, and you need to know what a subordinate clause is. It's just stupid, and we need to wake up. Because there are too many kids, we wonder why we've got mental health crisis for children. We've got too many kids who have been failed by this. The gap between the rich and the poor is getting wider and wider, and it's not closing. Why? Because it's irrelevant. What we're teaching to the majority of the kids is irrelevant. To a certain elite few, in private education and independent education. Oh, hang on, the government, politicians, them. It works for them. You go into an inner city, doesn't work for them. We need braver leaders who have the courage to be able to say, I ain't doing that. I'm gonna do this for my kids and I'm gonna use my skills and knowledge as a teacher to give them this experience, which I will cross-reference to the national curriculum to make sure that I have my coverage. And in, and in all honesty, that is what Ofsted wants to see. They want to see innovation. They want to see people doing things in a different way. So, so you're saying then, teachers um, or head teachers who are facing these challenges, what you're talking about, if they decide to take it upon themselves to instill change, um, mm -hmm. Ofsted actually support that. They don't actually yeah. hinder them. Yeah, I've, in my experience, yeah, that's all. That's what they want to see. They want to see personalised curriculum. That is why Ofsted, over a number of years, you know, that is why every so many years Ofsted changed their inspection schedule. The fact is, that their inspection schedule. That's a, that's another discussion. I'll keep you here for three hours if you want to discuss that. But if under their current remit, every so, every so often. For example, if you went into 10,000 schools and you found something was happening across the board pretty much, you'd then say, we're going to inspect this in the future, wouldn't you? And that's all, that's all that Ofsted do. They go to schools and check on what schools already think, because that's all that the inspection schedule is, is checking on what schools already think, right? And what Ofsted have realised is that schools have just become exam factories, nothing more. You know, whether they intended to or not, the, the accountability measures that have kicked in from government and through Ofsted and everything else have just made schools into exam factories. And so they said, listen, you know, what we need to now see is how are you delivering that in an innovative curriculum based way? What are you doing in your curriculum to get these results? The trouble is too many skills too many schools have just gone bogged down blinkered scheme routes that get you great exam results. But don't look at the bigger picture for the children within their school. And that's why Ofsted changed their criteria to say, we want to have a look at how you're developing the whole child here. What are you doing? Because if all you're doing is going in and you're flogging a maths scheme and you're flogging an English scheme so that you can pass a SATS test at the end of it, is that why we send our children to school? 
I don't think it is. Particularly at primary, I think it's abhorrent. They're kids. For God's sake, let them be a kid. Let them run, climb trees, fall over, eat mud. Do what yeah. kids do. You know, be kids. You know, I've, I've been in so many schools. I was, I was, I arrived at a school in Oldham a few years ago. I was having a mooch about on the first couple of days. And, and as, I, as I was sort of waiting in the bathroom, it was year two. Um, uh, the snow arrived, right? I was like, oh, cool, it's snowing, brilliant. You know, the teacher who was teaching adjectives at the time, right, went round the classroom, and as the kids, oh, it's snowing, it's snowing, they're seven, yeah, six, seven, you know, oh, it's snowing, excellent, excellent. You know, the teacher went round the classroom and pulled all the blinds down. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, and, oh, it, and it happens everywhere. It happens everywhere. But that I felt sorry for that teacher because they didn't have the confidence to go, it's snowing, get your coat on, let's get out there. Can you imagine the work on adjectives that you could have done after going out and playing in that for 15, 20 minutes? Yeah? yeah. And then come back in and talk about your adjectives, but go with the flow of what you take the opportunities for the, for the learning that happens. You know, in my schools, when the snow, when the snow hit, it was, it was an all-in snowball fight, staff against the rest of the kids in the afternoon. That was it. You know, we were out enjoying If the wind came out, we had 200 kites flying in the sky. Yeah. You know, take, take the opportunities to do things when opportunities naturally come along. You've got the World Cup. You've got the Rugby World Cup, the Football World Cup. What an opportunity to learn about different cultures, you know, different places, different languages, different money, different, you know, different things like that. It's all over the press. People go home, kids go home, and it's all over the front of their tablets and computers anyway. So you may as well um, you teach them about it in the right way. You know, what, take what? the opportunities. Now, go on, Karen. No, it, 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 case of, but, in, it, but instead of just being reactive with it, which is a part of it, you know, because like you say, if, you know, if you're... You know, if if you're in inner city and the and and your kids are all into football, some of the football World Cups on, yeah, do something around the football World Cup. Yeah, of course, that's a reactive way. But also be proactive. You know, it, the skilling of being a really really good teacher is to be able to develop and be proactive about developing a curriculum that's going to interest your children. Now, if the national curriculum says, you know, you've got to do some famous people, yeah, why on earth did most of them do Florence Nightingale? Why on earth do most of them do Mary Seacole? You know, why don't you do Beyonce Mary and Jay-Z? You know, why don't you do Beyonce and Jay-Z? Why don't you do David Beckham? Why don't you do, you know, do the, these kids go home and, and, and are involved in that world? I get history and you need to know your history and things like that. But you will get schools that will deliver six weeks on the Great Fire of London. Why don't they deliver six weeks about 9-11? Because it's uncomfortable, because it's a difficult topic. That, that's the world that they are growing up in. That was the day that changed the world. As educators, I think we've got a responsibility to educate them about that. Mm. So that they can see and learn that it was an extremist minority. It wasn't the overwhelming majority of Muslims. They're, they're lovely, peaceful, happy people. You know, we have a duty to do that. But do we do it? Do we? Are we ignore it and we brush it, uh, brush it aside? It's like empire, isn't it? Are we just, we just, oh, just brush it aside because we don't want our kids to learn that we are probably, quite frankly, the most bloodthirsty, so blood-soaked nation that this world has ever seen, frankly. Yeah. But we don't want to teach our kids that, right? We don't want to tell them what we did in India and Pakistan and how we split a country in millions down. We don't do that. No, we'll teach them about what we want them to learn about. It's a nonsense. Not in the 21st century. Not when they can go. If I wanted to find something out in 1985, I had to go down to the library, read a thousand books before I got the answer. Now they go home and go Google. So a knowledge-based curriculum is dead. It's a waste of time. Because if I were, I must ask Google for new things every day. And if you, you know, I've got a seven-year-old little foster boy, and if he wants to find something out, he just goes straight to Google and he finds it out. So a knowledge-based curriculum, knowledge for who? Because it's all there. The internet age has killed off the knowledge. It's about skill. It's about those skills that we are gonna need in the future so that we could, we've got a productive 
um, community and work for that is tolerant, understands each other, gets on all right. You know, sorry. Uh, I no, 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 let me sorry at all. Um, I was going to ask you, say, what, what advice would you give to teachers um, or anyone who's in position of authority who wants to implement the change, the changes you're talking about, but are a bit anxious with maybe the characters they have to deal with or superiors they've got to confront with? <laughs> um, I, I, would say, I would say have the courage of your own conviction. Be brave. If something isn't working in a school, then you have to, you have a duty, a moral duty, to stand up to those bosses and say, what you are telling me to do isn't working. There is another way. There is a better way. If you look at a school like uh, Jeremy Hanney's school in London, Three Breaches, right? They don't have observations. And I would never, never, never do an observation now, you know, in, in terms of observations for performance management or anything like that. What a lot of nonsense. You know, they, they do things like that. You know, there's no observation. Marking is absolutely minimal. It's, it, you know, how, how can a six-year-old remember what they did the day before? I can hardly remember what I did the day before. You don't mark stuff and hand it back the next day. You give verbal feedback constantly feeding things to kids so marking is, is just that you know and particularly when it's got to be in three colored pens which have got to be highlighted jesus h craft it's got to move on so i would say teachers need to have a courage in their convictions to approach their heads and say this is not working i need to do it a different way heads have got to have the courage to turn around to their ceos local authorities or whoever it may be and say this isn't working. One of the things that I did regularly when, when I went into schools was it was swamped with people coming in from local authorities giving advice, which was standardized stuff that was across the board. And how many times I went and said, you need to get out. You need to get out because all you're doing is confusing staff. They're doing what's right for kids and you're saying that everything in a reception classroom should be beige and in brown paper with wicker. What? Well, who came up with that? The latest research. Based on who? Because it's not right here. We're not doing it. Yeah. So leaders have to have that courage to turn up, to stand round to their bosses. And, and then and, and up it goes through the chain. We need CEOs and we need, we need local authorities and we need the whole profession, unions. We need the whole lot to come together and turn around to government and say, no more. But the union, I, I get very, very frustrated about about unions because you'll get one union who doesn't like it, one union says, oh, it's all right, we'll put up with it, and then the other union that says it's brilliant. So there's no cohesive response to government. What do the Chartered College do? I don't know. So you've got all these representative bodies who don't give a coherent and straightforward message to government. Look at the way they handled this summer. Look at the way that head teachers are on their knees with guidance, and yet you know, are still doing the best for their kids that they can. And look at the way that the, the, the machine keeps smacking forward saying, we are doing exams next year. We are doing what we have always done. Somebody, somewhere, God help it, it's not me, but somebody somewhere has to have the courage to turn around and say, this is not good enough. This is not right. And for me, that comes, that comes from... A lot of the, that drive comes from inside the profession, but the profession is very weak and broken. But it also comes from mum and dad. Mum and dad vote. Mum and dad have a chance to have their say. And mum and dad need to start looking at what we in the education sector are doing to our kids. Right? And think, is that what we want for our children? You know, one of the, one of the lovely rules that I, 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 need, I remind a lot of parents of is, is that there is a statutory responsibility on the head teacher to put the key stage two sats on. Yeah? There is no statutory responsibility on a child to take that test. So if every parent and every child said, if every parent said, my kids aren't doing this, there is nothing, nothing that a head teacher can do. But wouldn't, it, wouldn't the joy be amazing if every kid in the country said, no, I ain't doing it? The, the government would be completely up the creek without a paddle because they'd have no data and they'd have no reference for high stakes accountability with Oxford. Yeah. It's a flawed system. 
and it needs to change. And one of the great joys of COVID is I hope, I hope that we've seen that things can be done in a different way and that we can move into another way of delivering education to children, particularly at secondary. You know, learning isn't from nine till three, Monday to Friday. What a load of rubbish. Teenagers are, are not, grow, they're growing through developmental stages in their lives where they can't function in the morning. We all know that teenagers need to lie in. So, you know, for me, if school was going to be open to secondary, it shouldn't open till about 11 o'clock. Because kids need sleep. Teenagers need to sleep in the morning. Go to school at 11 and it runs till 5, 6 o'clock in the evening. But then they should be working from home in the evening and the morning and things like that. Why do they need to be in the school to learn? Because that's the way it's always been done. It's the 21st century. I could sit here every day and, de and deliver lessons to children around the world. Teachers need to become better facilitated. If they want to talk to the best, if they're doing a thing about basketball, why aren't they hooking up with, um, forgive my age, Michael Jordan out in America and Michael Jordan's giving them a speech? Can be done. If you want to learn about the stars and, you know, astrophysics and stuff, why aren't you getting all the Professor Brian Cox to teach your class and deliver lessons for them? And inspire them. If you want to learn about the natural world, why aren't you getting David Attenborough on the thing? The world's great teachers are going to be sitting there like you are and I am, and I'm going to do an hour in. I'm going to do an hour in New Zealand. I'm going to do an hour in Australia. I'm going to do that because why? Because I'm the best in the world at it. Why can't you? Why can't I do that? Yes, there'll be a cost, but you're going to get the best, and why shouldn't you? Teachers have got to become better facilitators. There's a, there's a thing in education that I loved. One of my year five teachers was brilliant at. It's called flip learning, where all the kids have to go home, watch a video from the teacher for 15 minutes the night before, get their questions ready, and then as soon as they went into class, they went straight into their learning. They, they flipped it. They did it the other way around. It was brilliant. Brilliant to watch. But it was utilising the technology, because they'd all got their own tablet. It was utilising the technology so that kids could, could learn from home and, and, and were set challenges at home that were different to learn these spellings. Read this book. It's like, oh God. It's the 21st century, for Christ's sake. Can't we do anything better? Can't we, you know, if, if all the kids in the class are talking about Minecraft, why aren't you developing a scheme around Minecraft? I don't care if the teacher doesn't know Minecraft. Learn it. Quick. Go on and figure out how to play it. Then you're on a par with your kids and then you can start to develop the scheme of work. What can we do in Minecraft? Right, let's go. We've all got a tablet. You come to me as a head teacher and say, can I have, you know, 30 licenses for Minecraft? It's going to cost 60 quid. It's going to cost 150 quid. I'll go, absolutely. If you're going to thrash the hell out of it and you're going to paste it. If you're going to use that, then absolutely. I'll guarantee it. You know, there's the money. Buy it. Get the 30 licenses so that your whole class are then working on Minecraft together. Minecraft projects and, you know, and in and out of that world and developing things. Better than learning what a subordinate clause is, isn't it? Or a front of adverbial. Take the opportunity. Learn from what's available. Use technology. There's a very good, um, very, very good, it's called the world's greatest PowerPoint. It's a, I'll, I'll be careful how I say this. It's called Shift Happens. Okay. And it, if you've not seen it, go on YouTube, just type in Shift Happens. Um, and Shift Happens 2020. There's various different versions of it and it just keeps moving on. It's, it talks about it talks about education and, and how it's very much not fit for purpose. You know, you, we've all seen Sir Ken Robinson's TED talk on do, skill, do schools kill creativity? The most watched TED talk in history. He did that in 2004. Bless him. He only died recently. That. Pardon? Yeah, I watched it the other day, actually, that. Yeah. He did it in 2004. 16 years ago. And look where we are. He was a great man, great visionary, and, and, but he did it right. He, he looked at every kid. You know, he said, didn't he, in the talk, everybody, Picasso said that everybody's an artist. But by the end of school, we batted it out and 90% of them. Mm. You know, yeah. those kids who were true artists will go on to be artists. But we shouldn't, we have no right to batter it out of them as they go through. We should nurture it. We should develop it. We should, we should make their craft so good so that when they leave, my God, they're good at it. Yes. Yes, we need kids to read. Yes, they need to know how to write. 
but what he's writing when we do everything on a keyboard. You know? But they need to know how to write. Yeah? They need to know mathematical knowledge, some basic mathematical knowledge of absolutely. They need to know some basic sciences in terms of biology, chemistry, physics. Yeah? So how the world works, they need to know that. But then after that, what is education? Yeah. For those that are interested in history, follow that path. Go diving into, you know, the exploration of historical facts, figures, what's your, what's your area that you really love and enjoy and, and go and research it and dive into it and find out all about it. Because it's a passion, you'll do it. You'll, be, you'll find teenagers in their bedrooms working on it at nine o'clock at night because they're interested in it. If you're a scientist, follow that route. If you're a mechanic, follow that route. I turned around to my son's secondary school and I said to the engineering department, I've got a spare motorbike here. It's a runner, but do you want it? You know, so you can strip it. I said, strip it down, take it to pieces, rebuild it. It's a practical project that your kids can then ride around the playground. And, you know, it's, it's a practical project for all the kids to, to learn and, and work with. And after six months of to and fro in emails, me begging them to take this motorbike, they said, we can't have it on the grounds of health and safety. It's it's just it's it's unbelievable. It, it it drives me up the ruddy wall, because it's not that it's that's just an excuse from not stepping out of the normal path. That's all that it is. It's an excuse. They use risk assessments and health and safety as an excuse. And and if you ever speak to anybody who works in those departments, they cry over this. Because they say it's not, there is no problem with having a motorbike on there. You just, you've just got to make it safe. Run your risk assessments and make sure it's safe. Hmm. You know, I, I would say to my teachers in year six, if you want to go base jumping in the French Alps, right? Yeah. As long as you've done your risk assessment, my God, mum and dad have said you can do it. My God, mum and dad have said you can do it, right? But you've done your risk assessments, mum and dad say you can do it. Right, you've used a really reputable company that have had no mistakes and have got everything left. Then why the hell wouldn't you go to France and jump off a cliff? Uh, you've done everything that you can to give those kids experiences, and that's what made the difference. That's why we went from bottom twenty percent to top fifteen in two years. That's why we, you know, in terms of attainment, we went from the bottom three percent to about the fiftieth percentile in two years. Bottom 3% to basically the national average within two years. So why, why don't you do it? Why, why, why do we all stay to the same thing? We do it because we're frightened. We won't change because we're frightened. Because the system, the machine will come and get you. And it does. And people lose their jobs over it. That's why they don't do it. Just on that point there about people losing their jobs. So, Phil, I like everything you're saying. It's, it's really resonating with me. But... <laughs> I got bills to pay, yeah. and if I speak up, uh, my superior, my teacher, my my counsellor, my boss in the local council, if I say what you're telling me, mm -hmm. they'll have me fired, and I'll be homeless. They won't if your standards improve. The proof of the pudding is in the standards improving, and if your standards are plateauing and not doing what they are, are at a level that could be better then you have to be asking yourself, and Oxted encourage you, what are you doing in your curriculum to make it better? Mm. So to a degree, you, you, you know, for the sake of, you know, why do you become a teacher? You become a teacher to educate children and give the children the best that they possibly can. But you're not prepared to do that because you might get fired. <laughs> it's like saying, uh, it's like saying uh, you might get hit by a bus. It's hypocrisy, actually, and, and nobody becomes a teacher to, you know, yeah, nobody wants to get fired. No, of course not. No. But if you've got a school that standards need to improve and things need to be better, you know, you should be looking, even the, even the very high achieving schools, you know, should be looking at what they're delivering and, and thinking, how can we make this better? You know, and very good schools do that. You know, they, how can we make things better for staff? If staff are happy, kids are happy. You know, I, 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 I used to use some very, very simple maths in that my staff used to take mm. that 70, 75% of my budget. Yeah, all comes down to money. They used to take 70 to 75% of my budget before I even started. 
So to me, it was really simple. Why on God's earth creation wouldn't I make sure that 75% of my budget is as happy as it could possibly be? And make sure that it's as easy for them to do a brilliant job as could possibly be. Because it's taking 75% of my money. I may as well make sure that bit's happy. Because believe me, if that bit's happy, the rest of it blows. The kids are happy. Parents are happy. The whole community's happy. It's not rocket science. It's just having the conviction within yourself to say, I want better. I want to be different. I want to make a difference. And having the conviction to say, I'm going to do this. I'm going to try this. And don't do it on your own. Work with colleagues who have already done it. To show that it, it makes an impact. Find those head teachers who are more innovative. Nobody knows it all. You know, I work, one of, the, one of the most profound reasons about the improvement in school is the collaboration that we did between, there were four other schools in my local area who were close to me. You know, they were all local authority schools. And I walked into the first head teachers meeting, sat them all down, put my raise and at the time, put my raise online in front of them, which is the document that we get as head teachers all about the school's data. And it was, and it was a beautiful picture of dark blue, which meant it was rubbish, right? My school standards were rubbish. And I went like that to all the other heads and I said, help, help me. I need your knowledge. You're in a better place. I need you to come and help me and I'll, I can help you and we can work together. I had a member of staff who'd been in my school for 20 years. You know, there's nothing wrong with her as a teacher. She had just become institutionalized. And, and, and a colleague had exactly the same problem down the road with another teacher. So we said, you're swapping for a term. You're going down there for a term and she's coming up here. You can't do that. You're not allowed to do that. Yes, I can. It's a local authority school. You'll go where the local authority tell you. I'm the head teacher who represents the local authority. You're going down the road for a term. She hated me. Because I took her right out of her comfort zone. But I said, you'll be back at Christmas. What are you worried about? Go, learn, go to a new school, new environment, new routine, new books, new everything, and come back. She's back at Christmas, completely reinvigorated. Said it was the best thing that ever happened to her. I never did, I very rarely sent kids, staff on one day training courses. I think it's a waste of time. I used to send them for about a week and go and really immerse themselves in it and really get their head around it. But when they came back, there was a, there was a really uh, rigorous sort of feedback from it so that they knew that they, they had to bring something back from it which we could, we could implement in school. It wasn't just a day out and then, oh, I, I had a nice lunch. What a waste of time. They came back with a robust plan about how they were going to be able to implement what they had learned in their new classroom, in their classroom environment. Yes, it cost me in terms of you know, moving staff about a little bit and, and, and that sort of thing. But my, Ill, my staff illness, when nobody, went, nobody had time off, why? Because they were all happy. Nobody was stressed out, nobody was worked up. You know? and, they, and, and, they, and, and, and there was a boss who said, if, you get, if you're poorly, I'd rather you took three days off and came back 100% rather than taking one day off and coming back at 50%. Don't do it, stay home. Get 100%, then come back. If you had, you know, if, if you were a teacher and you had a kid who was starting reception or something for their very first day, what are you doing at school? Get your kids to school. It's a life thing. It's one, it's one day in their life. They are starting school for the very first day and you're here. Why are you doing that? Take them to school and then come in half an hour later. It's fine. You're only teaching year five. They'll get it that you're going to be half an hour late. That's fine. But you've then had that opportunity to see your firstborn go to school for the first day you know you nurture your staff look after them give them give them cherish them look after them make sure they're happy and they've got everything that they need and then they'll take chances make sure that they're secure and they'll take chances and they'll improve things for you then their standards will improve the natural thing of it is that kids are happier to learn they want to learn more you know and it's how you make a lesson on well you should never do this anyway but it's how you make a lesson on subordinate clauses interesting that's the skill of a teacher if you blindly follow the scheme you go jesus i'd be asleep in five minutes so would you so it's how you deliver it that's the skill of a teacher 
that's the skill of a good leader, enabling staff to do what they need to do to make things better for their kids. And you get your maths and English results. The last thing that you worry about is the SAT, because they get it, they do it, because they're happy, they're learning, they're engaged in what they're doing. You know, making like a competition. Sure, it's, it's called courage. It's being brave and it's hard. It's hard because the machine doesn't want you to change. But when you do, you make a difference. And, it be, and, and, and I will guarantee it will be better. It will be better in terms of standards. It will be better in terms of emotional relationships, physical relationships, you know, you know social, social gains. Your behavior rapidly improves. You know, as a head, I'd have lines. Of kids. I'd turn up at a school, I'd have 10 kids outside my office after every lunch. Give it six months of doing the right thing and then nobody's there. And then those kids who were scrapping before are then helping tidy up and sort out and run their school because they feel proud to be part of it. You know, or they're the buddies on the playground looking after the little ones, you know, taking responsibility. You know, I had, I had kids who would run the front office. They would be in the front, year sixes were in the front office. I was the head teacher that was buying a shop across the road and I was turning it into a cafe that my year sixes were going to run. Why not? Teach them, a that, teach them that they go to work and do a day's work and when they've done a full day's work, they don't enough money to buy a CD. Teach them, you know, how to take orders and cook food and, uh, you know, yes, they'd have adults with them and yes, it would, you know, but it would be a cafe, it was a cafe that was going to open up to the public. That's cool. Why can't you six and do that? You know, you know, you think a, a week's worth of work experience when you're 15 is going to sort you out for your life. What a stupid token gesture. What a stupid token gesture. We've got to start getting kids and waking them up to the world when they're 11, 12, see what's going on. You know, I was going to have that cafe across the road that was just going to serve teas, coffees, cake, just a little cafe. We were going to open up the cafe and the year sixes would run it in rotation. So they would all have a, have a go at serving the public and being part of it. That's a great idea, that. Why not? Real, practical, phenomenon-based learning, real learning, real life, money, taking orders, getting orders right, serving people, taking the money, giving the right change. Ordering, get your orders, you know, ordering the stock and making sure that, taking stock checks, making sure that everything's running all right. I'm a bloody head teacher. What do I know about running a cafe? But we'll make it work. We'll have a go. Because it's for the kids. Buy scrap cars to engage your kids in learning if they're a bunch of boys who are scrapping and they love cars. And buy a scrap car. Strip it down. Sell the pieces. And flog the, you know, your, your scrap dealer will turn around and go, oh, you're doing it for the kids. It's all right. Have a car. They will. They'll help yeah. you. Support you. Because it's for the kids. They'll go, oh, I'll have that car over there. It's all right. You know, yeah. give 50, quid, 50 quid for the kitty and buy the lads a beer and go, yeah, all right. And you get a car and say, will you pick it up when we're finished with it? And they go, yeah, give it a shout out. You know, and six, seven weeks later, they come up with a trailer, pick it up and carry it off. Cost me something now, a bit of time and then kids out of school, but then I've got a dozen kids engaged in school, loving learning. Teachers are happy because they're behaving themselves in class now. Yeah. Kids are happy because nobody's scrapping on the playground. You know, all their friends are happy because they've got calmer kids. They're happy and they just want to come to school because all they do after that is then come back to you and say, sir, sir, what are we doing next? What are we doing next? Tell you what we're doing next. We're building a bird table. So you get them all in a room and they're in there with their power tools and they're building bird tables, putting wood up and building bird tables. Everybody says, you can't go in there with that lot with power tools. Of course you can. Because when they're in that environment, they're learning and they're having fun and they're doing maths, measuring, cutting, you know? They're writing things out, they're planning things, they're, they're, they're drafting things, they're putting things together. You guide them through the experience as a teacher. You do not sit there and deliver a scheme on fronted adverbial. It's a waste of time for a nine, 10, 11 year old child. No wonder we turn kids off from education. Except for the academic ones, as I've said, fits for them, they're all right. But we need more courage in our leadership. We need more courage, and that comes from the top down. I, I long and I dream of the day when a politician turns around and says, this is not right. We need to turn to the educationalists and, and say, what is gonna be better for our children? You know, and your great examples of places like Finland and Estonia and Canada, who take a much, much more child-centric approach to it. 
you know, put the kids first. Thanks, Phil. By the way, I appreciate doing that. Not at all. It's it, it's been it's been a was that useful? Very useful. Very useful. Good. And go on. No, I was just going to say that. Um, yeah, the idea is to help those who are in in that scope. Even even people who work in because I do I speak with a lot of prison officers, yeah. Um, yeah. and they face similar um, challenges in that they see a lot of things they want to change, they want to do, but they feel a bit limited with what they can do as well. Well, look at the look at look at the look at the retention rate in education. Forty percent of teachers walk away in the first five years. What's that tell you? That's about the same rate within uh, prison officers as well, right? What's it, what's it tell you? It tells you the system's not fit for purpose. Every one of those people went into teaching or a prison officer for a particular reason. Probably because they wanted to make a difference and they felt a need, you know, they felt, it's like a calling. I, I call it like a calling. It's like a calling. You want to be a teacher, you know? But if 40% are walking away in the first five years, you've got a problem in the system. Because what happens is they realise very quickly that once they've gone through their training, it's a case of, Follow the bloody rule book, do as you're told, follow this system, follow this structure, follow it, or you're out. Mm. You know, don't have any individual thought, don't have any, because kids are not individuals, they are a product. So you have to keep them on that production line and treadmill yeah. to make, you know, to keep the school safe. Same in prison. If you've got 40% of people walking away in the first five years, you've got a problem with their system. There's a, there's a guy I adore um, called W. Edwards Deming. He was a, a statistician from America. And um, if, if you talk about efficiencies of systems and you talk about people who get it right first time, yeah? And you talk about uh, a country that is unbelievably efficient and really, really switched on. For me, that country would be Japan, yeah? I've always bought Japanese cars, why? Because they work, they don't break, right? And when they do, they are easily fixed, right? Look at Japan, look at Sony, look at the, look at the technology and the electronics and the way that they have developed the world and it works, right? If you look at engineering, look at the Germans, because it's just so. But if you're looking at technology and, and, and everything else, then you go to Japan, don't you? Look at how the system is, is Built. Now, after the Second World War, Japan had had two wonderful nuclear bombs dropped on it by America, and it was in a state of a right mess. And they needed to put their society back together. And they turned to an American, right, called W. Edwards Deming. Right? And he, the, the Deming Award is indeed, even today, the most sought after award in the whole of Japan. And the Japanese people and government embraced the teachings of Deming, who was all about, you might have heard the term, um, total quality management. It's all about getting things right first time. Now, one of the, the lessons that has, has resonated with me deeply in my, in my life has been, Deming said, four out of five times when something goes wrong, it is the system that it has fault, that, that's at fault. The fifth time it's a human being, but it, it's a person, but we're, we're human. And, and to worry is human, we make mistakes, and that happens. He said, the problem with the West is we always look to blame the human. Always. When really, if you dig into what the problem is, four out of five times it will be the system that that person is working in. Right? It's not the person, it's the system. So I have always been a leader who focuses very clearly on getting the system's as efficient and effective as is humanly possible. Because if you get your systems right, then things don't go wrong. Occasionally they do, of course they do, but it's usually because a member of staff has not been trained sufficiently in something, or they just didn't know, or they're a new member of staff who hasn't followed the way that we've done things. Do you know what I mean? Mm. But systemically, you don't get things breaking down. And if you look at Japan, if a bridge collapsed in Japan, they'd have the ruddy thing built in a week. Whereas here it'd take nine months. That's the thing, they forget. what's the problem? The problem is the bridge is down, get the bridge built. That's the problem. The problem is the bridge, fix the goddamn bridge. And everybody piles in and they get the bridge fixed and then the traffic is moving again. Whereas here, 
we'll put laybys up, we'll put diversions up, we'll, go, we'll have to have a meeting to sort out a meeting. It's like, what's the problem? The problem is the bridge is down. Get the bridge fixed. We can deal with all that sort of other things after. And that's why Japanese society is so efficient. It's so, you know, it's so on the, it's so on the ball. It's deeply resonated with me as the, as the work of W. Edwards Deming. Um, uh, and, and as I say, and, and I've applied those theories while I've been here. And, it, you know, it's not hard to look at where there are systemic problems in school and alter them and change them so that they can be better. So teachers can teach and do what they love. And when they do that, you see the results.